Hey, it's Luke, and you're listening to the Tea Talks Podcast. Once a month, I invite people to come over to my house in Atlanta and have some friends give short talks on anything they find interesting. We sip on tea, eat Pop-Tarts, and cultivate a community of curiosity. These are those talks being recorded live in my living room with my friends. Hope you enjoy. So on this episode of the Tea Talks podcast, we're going to do our first micro-steep session. What does that mean? Well, it means you'll hear multiple talks in one episode. They're just shorter than usual, hence the micro. And as you can probably guess by now from the very long title, you're going to hear a couple of my friends talk about two very different things. Yeah, both talks revolve around some sort of psychology. First, you'll hear from my friend Ashley about the science behind why dogs tend to resemble their owners. And then we're going to dip our toes in the Enneagram waters. By now, chances are you've heard of the Enneagram. But if you haven't, then my good friend Steph, an Enneagram 7, does an incredible job of taking a few minutes to just give you a 30,000-foot view of the psych test that can better help you make sense of your life. And whether you're an Enneagram dweeb or a doubter, we can all unite around our mutual affection for man's best friend. So, without further ado, here's my friend Ashley unraveling the mystery of why dogs resemble their owners. Oh, also, before we get started, Ashley's live talk was quite visual, and when I say visual, I mean she brought her actual golden retriever, Molly. So when you hear laughter, or if the talk seems like it's missing parts, it's because I did my best to suit it to you, the listener. But it was best experience live, like every other tea talk. Okay, now let's get into it. So I thought we could talk about why dogs resemble their owners, because I know we're all thinking it. So, you know, we're at our dog parks, and we're just like walking around, playing with their dogs, and their owner will get their dog, and we're like, oh, that makes sense. Or we're like sitting on a park bench or at a coffee shop, and the owner and their dog will walk by, and you're like, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I'm just like, why is that? Why do owners always gravitate to look like their dogs, or vice versa? Oh, and people always tell me that Molly and I look alike. That's why I brought her. This is an experiment apart from this, to see if like Molly and I look alike because people are like, yeah, I see it in Summer Zayusa, I don't. But I think more so Molly and I act more the same than we look, and that's up for interpretation. You guys let me know after this. So this psychologist named, I don't know how to pronounce it, I think it's Sadahiko Nakahima, he studied this phenomenon in depth. As a researcher at Japan's Kwansei Gakun <laughs> University, he found evidence to support why dogs resemble their owners. Nakahima conducted an experiment back in 2009 to see if strangers were able to match up dogs with their owners. All they had to do was look at these photographs of their faces. So he basically had a lot of different, and I have pictures, of owners and their dogs and also dogs and random dogs and then random people. He even dove deeper recently. He created another experiment to test if specific facial features were key to correctly matching dogs and their owners. He created two sheets of dog and human portraits. One included dogs matched with their owners, while the other had mismatched dogs and people. To determine which facial features were most important, Nakahima blocked out the mouths or eyes on the photos of the dogs or the humans. Then the participants were randomly assigned to one of five different photo conditions and asked to identify dog owner pairs. Nakahima discovered that the eyes have it. It's like, what's in the eyes? Why the eyes? When either the human's or dog's eyes were covered, accuracy plummeted to around 50%. In fact, the participants identified the dog owner pairs with the same accuracy as they would with random guessing. 
However, participants could still correctly match dogs and owners 74% of the time when they all could see where their eyes. But why? I'm like, okay, is it in the eyes? Like, but still, like, why? You know, there's still so much more I'm so curious about. <laughs> Other researchers have discovered that owners are responsible for their doppelganger dogs. Similar to selecting a mate, people opt for pooches that are more familiar. Without realizing it, they look for physical features as well as personality traits that resemble their own. For example, they noticed that dogs and owners shared traits like extroversion or shyness. In fact, the personalities of owners and their dogs may be more similar than those of married couples. So I think that can go into maybe why me and Molly are the same, because we're both extroverted, we're people people, we smile. Um, that's maybe, maybe it. I mean, I don't know. Like We like hikes. <laughs> I take her everywhere with me. So maybe she's just molding into me or molding into her. I'm the better human because of her, or she's a better dog because of me. But Nakahima called this the mere exposure effect. So our own face is something which we are quite familiar with. We see it in the mirror every morning as we shave, put on makeup, or comb our hair. We see images of our face thousands of times each year as we pass by various reflecting surfaces in the environment. When you're walking by cars, you check yourself out. You know, we're just like always looking at our face. It's just what we're used to. Science, therefore, suggests that, as in the case of everything else that we have seen many times, we should be rather fond of it, as prideful people as we are. It is also likely that we will also transfer some of that sentiment to anything that is similar enough to remind us of our face, hence our dogs, or cats. Any cat people in the room? Some psychologists have argued that explains why children who look very much like one of their parents tend to be favored and treated more lovingly by that parent. Interesting, right? <laughs> Sorry if that hits home, guys. It might also provide a link to why people end up with dogs that look like themselves. So, two things. People are attracted to and adopt dogs that look like them. Okay? But also, people and their pets come to look like each other through cohabitation. Our main finding was that there is a significant resemblance between people and their dogs, but only for purebred. So if you have a mutt out there, I'm sorry. Do not go home to your mutt and be like, we look alike and we act alike. It's not true. Unless maybe it is. Prove me wrong. Prove Nakahima wrong. Dogs are humans. Humans are dogs. We're all intertwined. And that is the end of my tea talk. <laughs> <laughs>
it made me think and I'm like, oh, it's because like life's not that exciting. Like my life isn't that cool. We don't do that many cool things, but I'm an Enneagram seven. So I think it is. And that's where everything kind of breaks down for me. Um, does everybody know about the Enneagram in here? I mean, for the most part, I feel like everybody's on board. But for people that don't know, it's like a human psych that basically says you're everybody splits up into nine personality types that are interconnected. So the Enneagram ones are sort of the perfectionists. They're the people that like dot the I's or, or yeah, dot the I's and cross their T's. And they kind of follow the rules. They're very self-controlled, very unlike me. Um, the twos are the helpers. They're the people that are like willing to do anything and everything for people. They love people really well. They're super generous with their time. Um, threes are your achievers. They're like very action oriented. They have goals. They accomplish those goals. Um, fours are your Luke Bakers of the world. You know, they're, they're individualists. They want to be unique. They're like Roxy. Um, deep desire to be unique, but also to bring people together in the process. Five are your investigators. So those are the people that have like a wide breadth of knowledge on a little bit of everything. Maybe you're curious people, if you will. Um, six are your loyalists. And so those people I don't completely understand if I'm being honest, but they're kind of more the people that like play out every scenario in their mind. Again, I don't really do that. Um, sevens are me and Kelvin. Kelvin's a seven, my husband. Um, we're like the optimist to a fault, like the kind of like, we don't really think about what could go wrong. We just kind of go for it, which gets you in trouble sometimes, but it's fun. Um, and then your eights are your challengers. So they're kind of like more on the pressing edge of things they want to, they were like big on justice not afraid of confrontation again they scare me and then nines are your peacemakers i love those people they're just looking to keep the peace they're looking to make people happy and make everybody be included so that's kind of like your breakdown obviously not everybody falls like completely within a category but that's sort of what it looks like um and so i learned about the enneagram i guess it was about a year and a half ago and it legitimately changed everything for me because for the longest time i just felt like a really discontent millennial that like couldn't sit still for more than an hour um, but what I realized was like as a seven, that's kind of just like part of me. Are there any other sevens here? Okay. So you get it, right? You get it. And so um, I always felt like, man, like why can't I not stop? Like, dr like I would look forward to the fact that like in an hour I was like going to go get a snack. You know, like I was just constantly looking forward to something or like I would feel antsy if I didn't have like a trip planned or whatever else it was. Um, and so studying the Enneagram and through the process of like self-awareness and all of those different things that come along with it. I realized that maybe I'm not just like a discontent millennial that's unsure of the future and just can't wait for the next thing, but like maybe that's just how God created me to be. Um, and through that process, I mean, like Luke went through the process, a lot of people have been through it. You kind of realize, okay, so maybe I am like a little quirky and a little weird, but that's maybe just kind of how we're supposed to be. Um, and so a big thing with sevens, which every number kind of has the thing that they're avoiding, right? So like threes might be avoiding failure, whereas fours might be avoiding normalcy. And sevens, big thing is they're avoiding pain. Um, and so that's kind of a weird thing to avoid because in my mind, I'm like, duh, everybody avoids pain. But then you've got your eights that just want to talk about the pain. And again, I don't understand. But it's funny because you see yourself and you see life and you start to realize like, oh, everything I'm doing has the potential to be avoiding pain. And so it's tricky as a seven to be like, am I avoiding pain or am I just being an optimist? And that's kind of the line that you fight the whole time. Um, but as a seven, I just like to think that if I experience the pain and if I think about the pain and still choose to be an optimist, maybe it's all going to be fine in the end. Um, so I basically don't really have any way to conclude this except that if you haven't taken the time to go through the Enneagram to figure out what you are and to identify with it and to feel comfortable with it, you absolutely should. That's all.
Steph, and thank you all for listening to another episode of the Tea Talks podcast. Before we go, I just wanted to let you know that the next live recording will be next Tuesday, August 20th. You can grab your ticket in the show notes of this episode. So mark your calendar and invite some friends. But until then, stay curious. Stay curious.